before we really get in, just to let you know, and I, I, don't, I don't usually like to do this when I preach or teach, I, I really like to stick to one passage of Scripture where it's going to be, uh, you know, we can really draw out what's in that passage of Scripture. It always drives me crazy when people jump around uh, from this passage to this passage to this passage. So guess what? Today we're going to jump around from this passage to this passage to this passage. But just at the first, just so we get a clear idea of what we're talking about, and then we're going to drill down uh, as Stan read this morning on, on Hebrews 10. Okay? Uh, we're going to go a little bit quickly through it, but all the passages are going to be up on the screen. Don't feel like you've got to turn to each one. Uh, but we need to get a clear idea before we talk about the supremacy of God in missions through suffering. What is suffering? Okay? I thought Chris Crossan did a great job last week in talking to us about what is worship. So let's talk about what is suffering. Okay? Let's see what Scripture has to say about it. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance. See what he says. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Okay? Yeah, those are things we think of when we think of suffering. We'll see what Jesus says right below that in Luke. But before all of this, they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you'll gain your lives. This last passage from Paul that we talked about, Pastor Paul preached through just a few weeks ago uh, from 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul says, are they servants of Christ? Talking about these super apostles, right? You guys remember that. Uh, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. He was 39 lashes. He got that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from, riv from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren. Everywhere was dangerous. No safe place for him. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst often without food, in cold and exposure. To top it off, apart from these things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Okay. What is suffering? A few different categories we can lump things into here. Clearly, it's, it's you know, the obvious things you think of. It's persecution at the hands of those who are hostile to Christ. Beatings, imprisonment. They'll turn you over. They'll punish you. You'll stand trial. Uh, you'll be... Afflicted physically, physical afflictions and beatings, even up to death. Hunger, nakedness, being destitute and homeless, losing your job or your home. One of the things that's happening right now, uh, Cindy mentioned the early rain church in, in Chengdu. Several weeks ago, we saw the video of Pastor Wang Yi. Uh, the church has experienced uh, uh, persecution for them really started in earnest back in May of last year. Uh, it intensified in December of this year. Uh, the, the tactic that the police are using now is they, are, uh, they know who these believers are. They can't get these believers to stop meeting together. These believers, they keep changing locations, and the police can't keep up with where they're meeting. So what the police are doing is finding out um, where do they work. Let's go talk to their boss and get them fired. And that's happening all the time. 
where do they live? Let's go talk to their landlord and drum up some emergency that they've got to move out. Okay? That's the newest tactic uh, that those who are hostile to Christ are using against our brothers and sisters. Another category we see, not always physical, it's subjected to slander, to lies and dishonor. Ostracism from disowned by their family and by their friends. All alone. Danger, right? Danger everywhere. Danger. It's a danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. What does that leave, right? There's danger on his journeys, danger at sea. He had no safe place. So hazardous conditions in the service of Christ. Illnesses suffered for the sake of Christ. The, uh, as he's traveling, he's hungry. Paul, he's malnourished. He gets sick because of that. These are illnesses suffered for the sake of Christ. Missionaries, missionary doctors, even local Christians who were doctors who, you know, in old days would uh, go and serve in, in leper colonies and they would contract the disease themselves, right? Illnesses suffered for the sake of Christ. The last one is interesting. It's intense. Paul even included, right? He said, on top of that, there's all this stress and anxiety, I feel, for all the churches everywhere. So there's intense stress or anxiety from your service to Christ. I think these things sort of sum up what, what the Bible's talking about when it talks about suffering. Not just physical. There's, you know, lying. People lie about you. They slander you. They try to dishonor you, discredit you. Try to get you fired, right? Family kicks you out. You have nowhere to go. Even intense stress or anxiety. So, if that's what suffering is, what isn't suffering? Peter writes his first epistle If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Okay, verse 15 right there. But let none of you suffer, right? He says, as, as what? Well, I'm, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I'm not an evildoer. I don't, me- well, maybe I do meddle. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. Yeah, of course, we know that, Peter. Or as a meddler. Wait, what? What isn't suffering? Self-inflicted relational wounds. That's not suffering. Those are self-inflicted relational wounds. That's just, you, you, you just weren't wise in the way you talk to people. You weren't wise and measured in, in your response to people. What isn't suffering? Cranky spouses. Or kids that just won't listen. It's hard, but is it what we're talking about today? Suffering, capital S in quotation, suffering? No, it's not. Bad bosses, not suffering. Okay. Natural consequences of lives that are too busy? That's suffering? It's not what we're talking about today. Fruit that's born out of sin, the results of our bad decisions. I did a really stupid thing. I did a really sinful thing, and now I'm paying the price for it. I'm really suffering. No, you're not. You're, you're, just, you're just reaping what you sowed, right? That's not what we're talking about today in terms of suffering. Frustration from serving Christ in our own way, in our own power. That isn't suffering. That's frustration. 
These things, they all make life hard, and we're so thankful God shows mercy. But these hardships right here are not a direct result of our resolute faithfulness to Christ. Most of the time, it's from our bad decisions, our impatience, lack of caring, our need to uh, have me time. How do we know the difference? Do non-believers have to deal with these things? If non-believers have to deal with these things, then that's not what we're talking about today. Non-believers, they, man, they got cranky spouses and kids that just won't listen. Sometimes the church has more. Sometimes, just saying. Um, are we doing this for the sake of Christ? Are we suffering for the sake of Christ? Or is it just, this, some things in life are just really tough. Let's make that distinction today. Because as we continue today, what I'm talking about, of course those things are hard, and God shows mercy. And those things are important. They're important to our lives, and because they're important to our lives, they are important to God. But what we're talking about today is suffering for the sake of Christ. Okay. Why do Christians face suffering? Why does it even exist? Let's look at the source of our suffering. Where does it come from? The suffering for the sake of Christ. First of all, it comes from a world that's hostile to Christianity. What we're experiencing, I'm not, I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't, I try to read the news with some perspective, right? Like, I'm not going to go in, I'm not big on current events, but uh, let's look at the international news. Certainly, we live in a world that's hostile to Christianity. We see it every day. We hear it every day. We heard stories about it today. Pastor Wu lives in a world and a society that's hostile to his faith, hostile to his Lord. And it's not going to get better. Most of you heard this quote, Gandhi. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Can we just talk about this for a second? Sure. We as Christians should be willing to own up to our unkindness and our hypocrisy that can dishonor the name of our Lord. But is Gandhi right? If we were more like Christ, would the world be kinder to us as Christians? Is it because we're not like Christ that the world hates us? Let's see what Jesus himself says. John chapter 7. You know what? Jesus, uh, John chapter 7 tells a story about Jesus going home for the Jewish festival of booths. All right, Jesus went home for the holidays. So he's home. He's with his mother Mary and his biological brothers. You know, we know he, has, he had a, at least a couple uh, at that time. Uh, we see the book of James and the book of Jude and the New Testament were written by Jesus' biological brothers. At this point, John 7 is clear to point out that the brothers he's with at this time do not believe in him yet. Okay? It's his biological brothers who don't believe in him yet. What does he say to them? The world cannot hate you. They're unbelieving, right? The world can't hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. Is this the impression we get from Gandhi? If we were all more like Christ, the world would like us more? No, Jesus said it hates me. Why does the world hate Jesus? It's simple, because he tells the world it's evil. It tells, he tells the world things the world just doesn't want to hear. But what does he say to his believing disciples later as they're celebrating uh, the Passover, the Last Supper? He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, 
Because of that, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. This world is hostile to Christ. And if we follow Christ, it's going to be hostile to us. It's not that we're, if we were more like Christ, everything would be better. If we were more like Christ, things would be worse. Sorry to say, but that's the reality. So source of our suffering, first of all, is a world that's hostile to Christianity. All right? Just as the world hated Jesus, it will also hate us. But we need to make this distinction too. And I've said this myself, and I'm going to try to stop saying it. We're suffering for Jesus. I'm going to try to stop saying that. Christ suffered on the cross for us. So we never suffer for him. Like Pastor Wu said, what can we offer to God? There's really nothing we can give him. He suffered for us. So we can suffer with him, right? Alongside him. Second source, afflictions and trials from the Lord to test and strengthen our faith. Does our suffering come sometimes from the Lord? Does he himself give us opportunities to suffer? Does God allow it? Sure sure he does. Does he allow it or does he appoint it? Does he assign it to us? Again, let's see what scripture says. Is this something God's just letting... He's, let, he's just turning a blind eye and letting it happen, or is it something he's arranging for us? Paul writes to the Philippians, and he said, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says that this, the suffering, that you're, 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 going to, you're going to be privileged to suffer. This is a gift that God is granting to you for the sake of Christ. And not only will you believe in him, but you will suffer for his sake. It's not something that's just happening and God hasn't noticed it or we're praying that he'll stop it. It's something that he has arranged for you. Therefore, let those, Peter says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Just this, just this one verse so there is suffering that's according to God's will, according to God's design, that we would suffer. But what does he say? When that's happening to you, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while still doing good. So not only is he, is he arranging it for us, is it according to his will? That last phrase of the, the verse from 1 Peter there says that even while it's happening, we still need to do good. We still, we can't, we can't, you know, it's, just, it's, it's, it's just awful. I'm just going to do what I want now because I'm the... I'm the target of all of God's appointed suffering. No, even while it's happening, keep your chin up. Do good and trust your souls to the faithful creator. God is completely sovereign over the world he created and even over Satan, as we read about in Job. Satan's not able to do anything without God's explicit permission. So when God appoints our suffering, and he does appoint our suffering, he doesn't just allow it, he assigns it. There's not, if you, you just... You can't say that God's completely sovereign over the entire universe, every square inch, well, except for when people do bad stuff to us. God's completely sovereign over the entire, over the entire creation, or he's not. We believe that he is. He's completely sovereign over the world he created, even over Satan. When he appoints our suffering, it is in line with his divine will and serves his divine purposes. Okay. There's six reasons, I believe, 
that God appoints suffering for his servants, first of all, it produces deeper faith and deeper holiness. Paul writes, let's read about deeper faith here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this several months ago, we went through this together. For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And he's talking about the, this deep sorrowful condition that he's in, uh, despairing of life. He thinks, I've, got, I've received the death sentence from the Lord. Okay. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says that God ordained his suffering to remove any crutches, leaving him only to rely on God himself. Can't rely on his skill, his ability, his training, his, his uh, you know, what he learned. I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews, Israelite of Israelites. You know, he can't, he can't, rely, on, he can't rely on any of that. Only on God himself. It produces deeper faith, and it produces deeper holiness. The writer of Hebrews, for they, he's talking about our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, talking about our God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. God disciplines us often painfully by pointing suffering and affliction so that we might be refined like pure gold, leading to deeper righteousness and holiness. And what's tough is that for many of us, this is how God gets our attention. Sometimes it's the only way he can get our attention. Produces deeper faith and deeper holiness. Second reason, it makes our cup increase. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about not only your cup of suffering, the bitter cup that we drink, uh, as Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. But it's also our cup of joy, as in, like Psalm 23. My cup overflows, right? So it's this two-sided cup. Also from 2 Corinthians, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, as we, excuse me, as we look not to the things that are seen, uh, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Jesus says in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our suffering will be completely overwhelmed by the healing presence of the Lord, both in this life and in the blessed life to come. As our cup of suffering increases, so will our cup of joy to an increasing degree. The more uh, that the Lord appoints this suffering to us, the more suffering that we endure for the sake of Christ, the more our joy will be at the sight of the Lord and His presence in our life. Like we sang this morning, the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. This, this light and momentary affliction, it's preparing for you. It's bringing about this affliction you're suffering. It's bringing about this eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. It's the 
it's the cause. It's causing this eternal weight of glory to be. So it makes our cup increase. The third thing it does, it makes others bold. Paul says in Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is neat. He's writing to Philippians. He tells them, yeah, I'm, I'm locked up. I'm in Rome, but the imperial guard have got me. Here I am. Uh, I'm imprisoned. But all these brothers around me, they've become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. The, just the fact that I've been imprisoned and I'm remaining faithful. And because of that, they're much more bold to speak the word without fear. How cool is it that Paul's writing to this, writing this to the Philippians? You know, you know who's reading this letter when it gets to the Philippians? The jailer. Remember the Philippian jailer when Paul and Silas were worshiping? They worshiped before the shackles fell off. They worshiped before the prison doors opened up. There it goes. The Philippian jailer's panicking in, in Acts. And so he's, he's in Acts 16. He's panicking. He's worried. Like, I'm, gonna lose, I'm not going to lose my job. They're, they're going to lock me up or worse because these prisoners are going to escape. Paul says, wait, wait, wait. We're right here. Philippian jailer witnessed the miracle. Paul and Silas uh, shared the message of Christ with him. Not only he believed, but his whole family. You know he's reading this, right? When Paul sends this letter to the Philippians, and he's like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Imprisonment makes people bold to speak the word without fear. I can testify to that. I remember when that happened. It's not, it's not just our suffering, though. You suffer, and if, and if you're a... Uh, it's not just our suffering that makes others bold. It's our steadfast commitment to be faithful in spite of our suffering. It gives powerful encouragement to those in the faith. Pastor Wu, when, when, he, when he shared the video with us, his, his curtains are drawn. They're drawn for a reason. I mean, everything they do is in secret. The church meets in secret. Uh, the seminary has to meet in secret. They're always changing times. They're always trying to stay one step ahead. But their steadfast commitment to be faithful in spite of that has not wavered. They said, how's the first semester gone? He said, it's been, it's been pretty good. We've seen a lot of our students who have stopped. They've been able to stop reading Scripture according to their own opinion and their own impressions. And try, I'm just going to say this. We've got to stop saying, what does this Scripture mean to me? Drop those last two words. Just ask what it means. It's not going to mean something different to you than it does for me. The way we might live it out, that might be different between you and me, but its meaning is its meaning, and it always has been and always will be. And that's what he's teaching his students. He said they've stopped reading it through the lens of their own experience, their own opinion, their own emotions, their own background, and they're seeing the objective truth that God has in his word. And that's helped them turn from a man-centered good news to a God-centered good news. And for them, that's made all the difference. And just hearing that, just hearing that despite all of his suffering, He's able to teach students to do what so many of us in this country can't do despite the freedoms we have. It encourages us. It makes us bold. As they say where I'm from, if that won't light you on fire, then your wood's wet. 
that, like, it just lights this fire underneath us that we can do that. Jim Elliott and the Alka Five, 1947, jungles of Ecuador, they're killed. We all know this story. What we forget is they're right after that. I mean, they're on the cover of Life magazine. National media are talking about it. Applications for mission boards go up five, ten times after that. Seeing the boldness of people in spite of their suffering encourages us to do the same. Fourth reason is it puts the gospel on display. Paul says again in 2 Corinthians, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Read that part again. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Our suffering can actually help people see Christ and understand the gospel. People can see and know the suffering love of Christ by seeing the suffering love of his servants. This is how we magnify the Lord. Come, let us magnify the Lord, we read in Psalms. I always wondered about that. What does it mean to magnify the Lord? When we think about magnification, we think microscope. You take something microscopically tiny and bring it to the size where you can see it. That's not what we're doing. God's not tiny. He's not microscopically tiny. So it's not a microscope kind of magnification. It's a telescope. We're taking something that's impossibly far away and we're making it look like it's right here. So when we magnify the Lord, it's like a telescope. This distant God that they're just hearing about for the first time has been brought near through the suffering and the willingness to suffer, the willingness to love despite that of these servants of God. So when God appoints suffering, it puts the gospel on display. It also prepares the way of the Lord. I've always thought this was interesting here. From Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I bet a lot of you guys know that. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. We've got some chapters in Acts here, these first seven chapters. What was the command? All right, the command was, Acts 1, 8, Jesus tells his followers, right before he ascends to heaven, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Right? We've, 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 we've all seen this. Well, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. So what was the reality? Reality is first, first seven chapters of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit does come on them with power. They're preaching, and everybody who's gathered from different nations in the region have gathered in Jerusalem, and they're able to understand the message that Peter is preaching in their own language. We commonly call this speaking in tongues. It's fine if you want to call it that. We have to be clear on what it is. They weren't babbling. Everybody was hearing it in the language they know best. That's chapter 2. Uh, we read in the end of chapter 2 what the church is like, how they, uh, you know, the Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, uh, but they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer uh, and to, to giving of alms. Uh, they met in each other's homes and broke bread. They met in the temple courts. Uh, they uh, enjoyed favor with God and with all the people, right? And great numbers every day were coming to be saved. We read in chapter 4, 
uh, Peter and John, they go to the temple to pray, as was their custom, because we just read in chapter 2, they're always going to the temple to pray. And they see a man who is lame, and the man is asking for alms. He's asking for money to help out. And Peter and John say, we don't have silver and we don't have gold, but whatever we do have, we're going to share with you. So in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And the man did, and he rejoiced. And Peter and John were hauled in uh, by the chief priests, and they were st- they, this, and this time they were sternly warned and said, don't ever let us catch you preaching that again. They went back, and they were just amazed that they could experience that kind of scolding for the sake of Christ. Chapter 5, uh, we read a little bit about Ananias and Sapphira. Then we see Peter and John again preaching. They're taken in again. Uh, the Jewish council says, we warned you. Now we're going to beat you. And so they were beaten, and they were set free at the end of chapter 5. It talks about how they were, uh, they were rejoiced. They were considered worthy to be beaten for the sake of Christ. Uh, then in Acts chapter 7, we're reading about a man named Stephen. Oh, yeah, Acts chapter 6, they, they, they need to appoint deacons because the church is growing so fast. They need people to help uh, distribute food to widows and to the poor, and they just don't have enough people to help with all these administrative tasks. So the church is growing, and it's organizing, and that's great. In chapter 7, we read about the persecution of Stephen, actually the, the, the first martyr, uh, first person to die, to suffer with Christ and to die for his faith. But what, do we, what don't we read in the first chapter seven, first seven chapters of Acts. They're all still in Jerusalem. Nobody's gone anywhere yet. Good things are happening. Great things are happening. Amazing, powerful things are happening. They are still in Jerusalem. So chapter 7 concludes where Stephen is stoned, and there's a young man there. Uh, we read about him in, uh, at the very end. His name is Saul. Later becomes Paul. Spoiler alert. Uh, so he's there giving his approval to the death of Stephen. So what do we see in Acts Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Finally, after this great persecution arose, not just the death of Stephen, but a great persecution broke out on that day in the city of Jerusalem. And they were scattered. The command was to go. But they waited. A lot of good things happened. You don't want to discount what happened. But they still hadn't gone yet. They didn't go until the persecution came. Let's read on. Acts chapter 11. Now those who were scattered, why were they scattered? It's clear. They were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. God uses suffering to light a fire under the feet of his servants to remind us not to become entrenched in the temporary. It's not just that God uses suffering to turn bad things into good. It's that he knows that comfort and ease will lead to spiritual inertia. So he brings the heat to his people's feet. And then we become what Psalm 104 says, flames of fire. It's not that, you know, the Chinese churches, if you, if, you ask, if you ask Pastor Wu, if you ask Pastor Wang Yi, if you ask a lot of the pastors that we've known, even the ones that we haven't, what are you most afraid of? They don't say persecution. They would never say persecution. They're mostly afraid of prosperity. It brings comfort and ease. I'm not saying you march toward... Let me, let me be clear. 
And I think I do this in the end, but I need to make sure I'm clear because I don't want you going away thinking I told you to do this. We don't march toward persecution. We march away from comfort and ease where our destination takes care of itself. Last reason here is that God appoints suffering for his servants because it makes Christ look beautiful. Three ways this happens. First of all, Christ, it makes Christ look beautiful because we acknowledge that he is worth the price of our suffering. It makes Christ look beautiful because his power is made perfect in our weakness. And finally, it makes Christ look beautiful because our sufferings cause us to rejoice in him. We'll go through these one at a time. Okay? He's worth the price of our suffering. This is one verse. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus is teaching. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. We could do a whole sermon series, six weeks, on just this verse. It's so heavy. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that was hidden in a field. And a man finds it. Smartly, he covers it back up. But then he goes and he sells everything that he has and he buys that field. Everything that he has. Sorry. Jesus is worth the price of our suffering. It's all worth it. His power is made perfect in our weakness. He did this just a few weeks ago. Pastor Paul preached this. But he said to me, this is Paul saying, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ then, I'm content. He uses the word content like he's okay with it. It's not like it's mildly discomforting. No, he says he's content with it. If this is what it is, then this is what it is. I'm fine with this. I'm content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The power of Christ is made perfect in our weakness, and the result is that we're okay with that, no matter what it brings. Finally, our sufferings cause us to rejoice in Christ. Let's look at the example of Peter. I just talked about this a minute ago. After they were beaten, right? This is the second time they were pulled in before the Jewish council. First time, they're warned sternly. They're worried. The Jewish council wants to, they, they want to really do bad stuff to them. But they're, they're like, a lot of people are listening to them. We don't want to like start a riot or anything. So we're going to warn them sternly, send them on their way. Uh, then they go back. After that first time, it, this is not in Acts 5, it's in Acts 4. After that, it says they actually go back to where all the believers are gathered. They share what happened. They rejoice that they were even considered to be sternly warned. And they, uh, they pray and the place shakes. They go back again, doing the same thing, preaching in the temple. They were taken, this time they were beaten, but they went back. They left the presence of the council. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. This is early Peter. Let's look at late Peter when he writes in his epistle, chapter 4. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Don't be surprised by it. Rejoice in it. 
to wrap up today with this key question. That's what we're all thinking. Sounds good. Thanks for sharing, Bo. But will I have to suffer because I follow Christ? I mean, cool video, but I don't live there. Am I going to suffer because I follow Christ? Will all Christians suffer or is it just some Christians in certain places? First of all, let's not be surprised by suffering. It should not catch us off guard. That is part of the deal. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We all know the, a lot of us, not all of us, a lot of us know the last sentence here, but the one right before is good too. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him to come and to die. We talk about bearing our crosses. Crosses were not intended to be dragged around. They're in, you die on them. We're not talking about your baggage. He bids us to come and die. Paul says the same thing to Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let's take a look at the passage as we wrap up. Stan read earlier from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 to 39. But you, I'll read it, go ahead and read it again, it's worth it. But you recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. It means after you became a believer, after the Holy Spirit turned on the lights for you. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. We'll come back to that. Look at this. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What's happening? Persecution's breaking out all among the region, all sorts of opposing forces. You got pagan Roman leaders, you got Jewish officials who don't like Christianity. It's happening from a ton of different fronts. Just imagine a country today that is, uh, has, has a large uh, Islamic population but also has government, official government resistance to Christianity. They're getting attacked from a bunch of different angles. Same thing's happening here. Christians are being taken into prison. And in prison in those days, they don't feed you. They don't give you blankets. You depend on your friends and your family to do that. They're Christians, so they've been ostracized and disowned by their family, so they're depending on their brothers and sisters to meet their physical needs while they're in prison. So if, if I know that a brother of mine has been arrested and the same thing right now is happening in China with Pastor Wang Yi, I know that my brother is in jail. I know he needs my help. I know he needs some food and a blanket. I know he'd love his Bible. But if I take it to him, might as well just stay because I'm outing myself. We read the, I read the blog of the Early Rain Church in western China. One, one man, he said, Getting ready to go to church today. Uh, I've turned off my phone. I've left it at home. I'm not going to take it with me. I'm trying to decide, should I wear my warm shoes and take my big coat? Should I wear prison clothes or church clothes? Because I don't know what's going to happen. So that's, what ha- that's what's happening here. You're going and, and you're taking the food and you're caring for people. You have compassion on them. While you're going, you might as well stay because the, the authorities see who you are and they're going to your house and ransacking it. They're taking your stuff. Just Stay. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. For, quoting the Old Testament, 
Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But the writer says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Will I have to suffer to follow Christ? You know what? You live in the United States in 2019. Um, so I'm going to say, you may not. If you stay in the United States the rest of your life, you will probably never uh, be arrested or thrown in prison or beaten or uh, worse for your faith. Some of you have probably experienced some uh, mocking, maybe even disowned by your family. A lot of us experience this anxiety and stress. Apostle Paul writes all this anxiety and stress over the churches. How many of us feel that now? But even if we don't suffer directly, we are supposed to be partners with those who do. What did he say in the previous slide? They were sometimes exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes they were partners with those who were treated so. Remember Abraham, Remember from our, our home group prayer study, Abraham and Moses and Nehemiah, remember the common theme there? As they prayed for their peoples, they identified with their people. Nehemiah had never even been to Jerusalem. He'd never even lived there. He was born in Persia. But he identified with the Jews who were there. He made himself one of them. We have to identify with our suffering brothers, suffering brothers and sisters around the world. If one member suffers, all suffer together. One member rejoices, all rejoice together. We can't be like those who shrink back, but how? How do we do this? How do we as a community become partners with those who are being treated this way? I think this is how. How do we live out Hebrews chapter 10? Well, Hebrews 11 starts us out. It's a familiar chapter to a lot of you, so we're going to zip through it. But look to examples of faith and suffering. Let's look. Let's look and see if we can see some examples of how to do this, how to live this way. Hebrews 11 tells us about Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham. It says they all died in faith, not having received what's promised, but they saw the promises of sorry, but they saw the promises of God and they welcomed them from afar. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They desired a better country, a heavenly one, so that God is not ashamed to be called their God. Hebrews 11 continues and tells us about Moses. He chose to be mistreated along with his people. Remember, he was a prince in Egypt, but he chose <clears throat> to be mistreated along with his people then enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He considered the reproach of Christ as greater wealth, Hebrews 11 says, than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. Others were stone, stoned, sawn in two, and killed with the sword. They were destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and caves. All these, Hebrews 11, were commended for their faith, but they didn't receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. How can we be partners like that? Well, Hebrews 11 starts us out. We look to examples of faith and suffering. Hebrews 12 pushes us forward. We look to Jesus himself. First three verses of Hebrews chapter 12, familiar passage again. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these heroes of the faith from chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set as before us. We've looked at the heroes of the faith in chapter 11. Now let's look at the hero of our faith, the object of our faith. We look unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Charles Spurgeon says that though tribulation is the path of God's children, they have the comfort of knowing that their master has walked it before them. They have his presence and sympathy to cheer them, his grace to support them, and his example to teach them how to endure. Hebrews 11, we look to examples of faith and suffering. Hebrews 12, we look to Jesus himself. Finally, Hebrews 13 brings us home. We suffer with Christ, not for him, but with him. We suffer with Christ for the joy and the promise of what is to come. Hebrews 13, we read that so Jesus also suffered outside the gate of the city in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let's go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that's to come. In conclusion, we should all be ready to suffer and not be surprised by it. These things are happening all around the world to our brothers and sisters. It's real. It's actually happening. You have more in common. You have more in common with Pastor Wu. You have more in common with Pastor Wang Yi. You have more in common with your brothers and sisters in Sudan than you do with your neighbor who lives on your street that you went to college with, whose kids are part of the same sports team that your kids are part of, but don't know Christ. You have more in common with these people that we're seeing in these videos and these people that we're reading about than the people that we live around. So be ready to suffer and not be surprised by it. We don't run towards suffering. I said that before, I say it again, but we do run away from comfort and ease that give us a spiritual inertia. We should be concerned and compassionate partners of those who are suffering. We should be like exiles and strangers here, always looking for the city to come and awaiting the Savior from there. We're going to do our sharing time in just a moment. I'm doing it slightly different. Instead of three questions, I only have two. So cutting you short a little bit. But I'm hoping to save you some time that you might pray in your small group. Uh, maybe even pray for Pastor Wu and his church and his seminary. Maybe pray for Pastor Wang Yi that we've seen from Early Rain Church. But let's pray. Our Lord, we, we love you. We have confidence in you. We eagerly await you. Even though we or our brothers even though we walk through the valley of shadow of death, we fear no evil, for you're with us. Your rod and staff, they comfort us. You anoint our heads with oil and our cup overflows. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And we know that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Would you help us to live like we don't belong here because we don't belong here? Would you show us what it means to run from comfort and ease? Would you help us to gladly receive whatever it is you appoint for us? Would you help us to learn and to remember how to be faithful partners of those who suffer as though we were suffering ourselves? This is easy to forget, but God, help us remember. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.